Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Premier says he wants to take a surgical approach to the next group of shutdowns for COVID-19. What exactly does that mean? Well, we'll talk about it. Uh, it's going to cost you more to work from home. Hydro rates are going up. Sorry for the bad news. And the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce is pushing for a basic income pilot project from the federal government. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday in his daily briefing, uh, Prime Minister, the Premier, rather, Doug Ford, uh, says that the numbers are up. They were up actually over the five-day average, which should be concerning. But uh, he said there's still room for hope here. Everyone in Ontario, all 14.5 million people are doing a great job, and Dr. Brown will be out putting out information that we see uh, the curve going down, which is, which is great news. And I give all the credit to the, the people out there uh, in Ontario, but we can't let our guard down. Just, be see, just because we see it sloping down a little bit, it doesn't mean uh, we let our guard down. So I just want to thank the people of Ontario. You're doing a great job, and uh, let's keep it up. We see it going in the right direction, and that, that's really positive. And I'm, you know, I, I just, it's, it's put me in a good mood today. I'm always in a good mood, but today it just tells me the people are listening. Uh, I'm glad he's in a good mood. Uh, there are some people that are concerned about those numbers, and uh, you know, notwithstanding the premier's uh, evaluation that it's a downward trend, uh, he also said uh, in the same briefing that uh, we can expect daily numbers now to be anywhere from 800 to 1,200 per day, uh, which is a little higher than what we were used to. So I think we're going to see if we're getting mixed messages here. I want to bring uh, Allison Thompson in the conversation. Allison, of course, is an associate professor of pharmaceutical sciences and a professor of public health services. And uh, that's all at the uh, Dana Loma School of Public Health, of course, at the University of Toronto. Uh, Allison, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us on the program today. Thanks for having me, Bill. Let me ask you, do you agree with the Premier's assessment here? Do we have uh, 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 some some optimism here? Um, I, I think that, you know, this is a little bit premature to be being so uh painting such a rosy picture i think that the data shows that we we don't we don't know enough at this point about to call this a downward trend and some of my colleagues are wondering whether this is just the start this is more of the baseline for the second wave than it is you know the peak of the second wave so i think we need to to have more time to assess that and you know i i understand his need to stay optimistic but we don't want to be celebrating too soon, and I think we're really far from being able to say that we're we're beating this back at this point. Well, that's what confused me yesterday because we had seen a five-day average, and I think it was around 840 or something like that. I'm just close to that number anyway. And then we got yesterday's number, which is about 100 more than that. Uh, and then yesterday he also mentioned that with the daily averages could, could vary anywhere from 800 to, to up to 1,200. Uh, and he says at least for the next couple of weeks. That doesn't sound like a downward trend to me. No, it doesn't. And I think he may be referring to the fact that hospitalizations are down um, rather than just the prevalence in the community going down. And so there's there's a problem in how he's communicating this information, I think, and and. You know, I don't think he's doing anybody any favors by painting too rosy a picture here. Well, yeah, and therein lies the problem, I think, because I, I, there's been, I think, a lot of pushback in, in on the political realm anyway, that maybe we have to reconsider some of the uh, the restrictions and uh, closures or whatever it is that uh, that he had in his mind. And I know there was some pushback on that earlier. Uh, I, I just get a little apprehensive, and I understand you're absolutely right. Uh, the politics of this, you know, let's let's keep a smiling face about this. 
but you know it's still here and the, and the numbers are still there uh, and they're going up not down I, and i you know i don't see a downward trend here i know you know that's a projection i get that but uh, we're also told and you and i had this discussion a week or so ago when you were on the program that as it gets colder and it's chilly today uh, and we're spending more time indoors the possibility of spreading the virus increases significantly Absolutely. And, and, you know, the option of keeping your windows open to get some fresh air in there and keep, keep the uh, indoor environment safer is, is rapidly that, that window is closing. So we're going to have to rethink uh, our need to, to socialize and get creative. You know, um, we've seen a big spike in people buying equipment to keep themselves warm outside. Um, but, you know, these, these kinds of, of, uh, impacts on on how we socialize are, are going to harm us in other ways. So there's a lot of of question about what is a proportionate response right now uh, to what we're seeing, and how can we balance some of the the harms that that shutting down does not beyond the economic harms. There are many many other harms that that happen to people, and particularly for those in in institutions like long term care um, that are very concerning. Yeah, and uh, I saw a story yesterday, and I, I guess, as, as you mentioned, I mean, we're learning new everything, something new about the virus almost every day. Uh, they're saying that the virus itself, and, and they're wondering if it can stay even in your body in four to five months, dormant to a certain extent, but it's still there. You don't get well in four days like somebody is bragging about these days. That there, there are going to be some long-term effects, and we already know that there's going to be some long-term effects too. And uh, I, I just I don't want to you know belittle this and simply say, hey, the worst is over, because every other expert aside from the premier. Uh, seems to be telling us that the worst may yet be, to, to, and it's going to depend as you, a lot of our behavior, isn't it? Yeah, a lot of it is about our behavior, and a lot of it is about their um, ability to actively manage and uh, these these cases and to do the proper contact tracing. And if they switch to this more surgically precise response to the outbreak, which is, you know, maybe that's an unfortunate. Uh, metaphor he's using there about <laughs> surgery, but, um, you know, if they're going to be more laser focused on where the outbreaks are occurring and responding that way, that, that's fantastic. But I, I don't really have the confidence that we have the capacity to do that because it requires very, very rapid contact tracing, effective measures being implemented in a timely way. And we just haven't seen that. We haven't, we haven't really seen that the province has the capacity to do that. And so, um, while the the alternative is, you know, the economic shutdown, um, and that's that's not a great solution, and it's really unfortunate that we don't see nine months in more more precise um, responses than a, just a blanket lockdown. But you know, I I don't really see him talking about what that surgically precise response to outbreak management is and how they're going to do it and how how the capacity in in terms of the public health measures has been bolstered and that's a point I, I got about a minute left here but i wanted to get your read on that because it's it's something that bothered me from earlier this week it was a comment that the premier made and, and I'll, I'll follow along his metaphor about surgical approach uh, before a surgeon even puts the scalpel in in their hand they determine where the problem is exactly uh and that's that's where they attack uh i don't know that the province has done that i mean they may say that okay the gta but is is it really restaurants and bars that that is causing this or is it public gatherings because they're two different things and if they're going to say okay we can't really control the public gatherings so we're just going to put restrictions on the restaurants that may not be solving the problem at all 
Exactly. And, and you know, to, to, to do it um, based on sort of by business type is, is very odd. Uh, you know, you want to you be looking at where are people gathering unsafely um, and, and, you know, approaching the problem that way. And, and I'm, not, I'm not, not sure that saying whole classes of businesses are the problem here. So um, I think we, we need a lot more information about what this new approach is going to look like. And certainly it's very attractive. It, it avoids all kinds of other harms that, that we saw from the, the big full lockdown in March and April. So, you know, it's an attractive approach, but I'd like to hear more about what he's planning there and what resources are being diverted into that kind of an approach. You and me both. Uh, Allison, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time. Have a great weekend. Thank you. You too. Happy Halloween. And you too. Allison Thompson, of course, uh, from the uh, University of Toronto, the uh, uh, Dalla Lina School of Public Health. I want to get the political end of this and find out what's going on. You know, the smiles from the premier yesterday that uh, there's room for optimism. Not everybody is sharing that. Uh, Sabrina Nanji covers uh, Queen's Park, of course, for Queen's Park Today, and she joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to give us that angle. Sabrina, thanks for the time. How are you doing this morning? Pretty good. Pretty good. Thanks for having me. Good. On uh, Halloween Eve, I guess it is. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about this. Uh, was it a trick or a treat yesterday? Uh, I, I, it sounds as if they wrote this report the day before. Then they got some, well, I thought bad news about the numbers going up and the projection that they could go as high as twelve or 1,400 per day. That doesn't sound like we're on a downward trend, yet that seemed to be the spin we got yesterday. Yeah. Um, you know, the Premier, when he teased the data that we saw yesterday, uh, earlier this week, he, he said, you know, it put him in a good mood uh, and we were moving in the right direction. He he did sort of seem to pump it up a little bit. And then when, when he was asked, you know, for specifics, he, he did sort of walk it back. You know, uh, he said, the curve is not exactly flattening, but we're moving in the right direction. Um, there were a lot of caveats to that. Uh, and I think a lot of people, when the data came out, thought that the Premier might have been overselling it a bit. Uh you know, the, the doctors did say that, uh, you know, while while we're not necessarily flattening the curve or coming down the other side of this second wave just yet, we are slow. The, the growth in cases is slowing, which is something to be um, is something to be optimistic about. But they did stress, you know, by no means are we out of the clear cases are still going up. And as you mentioned, you know, at, at between 800 and 1200 cases, we can expect to see that for the month of November. So um, I, I don't think we're out of the woods yet. Um, and and you mentioned you know, earlier that the premier wants to take this surgical approach. I think that they are uh, looking at that a little more now. And, and maybe that is uh, that's part of why the premier was in a good mood, because, uh, you know, a lot of municipalities, a lot of businesses um, are, are looking for for, you know, maybe a more surgical approach. Uh, and because now we are learning more, they are sharing more of this data. Take, a lot of people have been asking for a targeted approach, and it seems like the premier is uh, is listening. I wondered about that because uh, remember the incident earlier this week when there, there was a hint uh, around Queen's Park that uh, they were going to extend uh, their, their red zones to Halton region. And, and and there was an immediate pushback, of course, from the mayors in that region and uh, some conflict even between those mayors and the medical offices of health in that area about what should happen here. And uh, basically saying, if you think it's going to be restaurants and bars, if you're going to put more restrictions, show us the data that shows that that's what that the problem is. And the, the province didn't respond to that. They just backed away altogether. I'm wondering if they have that information. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think the premier almost sort of 
teed up that uh, the Halton drama controversy, whatever you want to call it, um, himself, because, you know, if, if yeah. you recall, you know, that he had said that an announcement was coming. And I think that is what made the mayors, the MPPs and, and the local politicians sit up and, and start saying, like, no, we don't want this. And, and then it never happened. So, uh, you know, the premier did say that was a unique situation. It did seem to be effective in a way. But, uh, you know, Halton explained that they weren't seeing the data. And I think that the data came out yesterday has raised even more questions um, for a lot of people. Uh, I think if if uh, you guys have seen the pie charts floating around that show uh, the the source of outbreaks in, in the hot zones, you know, showing maybe restaurants and uh, and gyms not having maybe as high uh, infections as we might have as we might have expected, given that they are what's being shut down in this modified stage two and hotspots. But uh, you know that said, there's a lot of caveats to reading this data. So I think there's a lot of uh, the surgical approach. You know, the premier has hasn't really given us many details about it yet, but it does seem to be like at least it will be based um, on on regions. The premier did use the example of Peel, uh, saying that infections are rising in Mississauga and Brampton, but Caledon, uh, not so much. And when the Halton politicians wrote to the top doc and the premier, they they asked for this targeted approach by sector as well, saying not to do these blanket restrictions, you know, on the entire restaurant industry. Maybe there are, uh, you know, uh, places within like uh, restrictions within that, that even, you know, municipalities can pass bylaws or something, because I don't think anyone, even the premier, wants to go into these blanket lockdowns again that we had, uh, you know, earlier in the spring. No, I, I think we're all unanimous about that. That seems to be the thing. But I think the the, the question, and, and I hear this when you guys are doing the Q&A after his announcement every afternoon, uh, you know, show us the data. I mean, you know, restaurants and bars don't seem to be the problem. Is it, Are you putting restrictions on some of those because you can uh, and you can't control our gatherings, and, uh, including your own MPP, by the way, who had one of them his own just a couple of days ago, and he's taking some heat for that. Uh, it, it just seems as if they're focusing their attention or their surgical strike, so to speak, at the wrong area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that's, uh, you know, these, these the data that was released yesterday, it certainly raised a, a lot of questions for people, I think, especially, you know, some, certain business owners. Uh they want to see more, and and even the the doctors, you know, they were sort of put put on the hot seat. Uh, if I can say this, you know, one one reporter said uh, BS, called BS on this data, uh, yeah. which uh, was pretty was a pretty fun moment, I should say. In a in a brief there were some raised eyebrows, service. weren't there? <laughs> uh, yeah, and you know what, I uh, I have to say, like you know, it's it's not the health officials that make these decisions, right? Like just to preface all of this, it's the premier and and yeah. and cabinet, and they have to weigh. They're getting this advice from the health officials, and they have to weigh everything else, you know, the economic sides of things, the mental health, and all that. Uh, but but when the doctors were explaining these charts to us, they did explain that, you know, they wanted to show us these pie charts of the sources of outbreaks um, to show us how different it is in different hot zones. You know, we're seeing um, more restaurant uh, infections in Toronto compared to Ottawa, for instance, Um and they said that it, they, if they haven't just looked at the sources uh, in, in their recommendations for, you know, modified stage two, closing gyms and indoor dining, they're looking at more of a risk is, is also what they're assessing in this, too. So they said that risk is a major factor in these shutdowns. Um, and they've also said that it's the types of settings. So, you know, for example, in a gym, you're not you're not wearing a mask while you're working out. 
Um, and, and that is that puts you at a higher risk. At a restaurant, you're taking it off when you're eating. So I think that the surgical approach, um, I'm not really sure how it how it fits into there. Like we don't really know yet. Uh, I don't have the answers. I think. I think that that's what the government is is leaning towards, though, is that how do we sort of tamp down this risk so that these uh, higher risk settings uh, can stay open and can and can stay functional? Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think that that it, it is based more on risk, and we are seeing you know there's also holes in this data too. Uh, there's a lot of community spread happening right now. So if the public health officials don't, don't know where all the cases are even coming from. So these, these pie charts that are out there, I think, um, has, have sort of blown up a a little bit, but there's, there's a lot of caveats to reading this data that people need to keep in mind. Exactly. Well, we'll be watching for your reporting on it over the next couple of days. Always a pleasure, Sabrina. Thanks so much for this. Have a great weekend. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. Sabrina Nanji, of course, from Queen's Park today. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Trick or treat? Well, I, uh, I've got a trick for you, and this one's from the Ontario government. Uh, as of November the 1st, uh, the day after Halloween when you wake up, uh, your hydro rates are going to go up. We warned you about this a couple of weeks ago, but uh, it's going to hit different people in different ways. Global News' uh, Tina Trujani has all the details. Electricity prices are going up almost 2% on the 1st. That will work out to just over $2 a month for the average household. Customers will have the option to move from time-of-use pricing to a tiered pricing system, which bills them at a lower rate for the first 1,000 kilowatt hours and then rises from there. The Ontario Energy Board announced the bump earlier this month, which prompted the official opposition to accuse Premier Doug Ford of breaking a 2018 election promise to cut hydro rates by 12 percent. I understand. I think there's going to be uh, a rate of inflation or $2 a, a month, and I, I hate it. Time of use prices have been frozen at 12.8 cents per kilowatt hour, no matter the time of day, for the last couple of months. Effective Sunday, the highest rate will rise to 15 cents between 11 a.m. and 5 p.m. Tina Trajani, Global News. All right, hands up, everybody, that believed the Premier when he said he was going to reduce hydro rates two years ago. Anybody? No? Okay, all right. That settles that. Uh, but this is going to hit people uh, in different ways, of course, as we were just mentioning. I want to bring uh, Steve Apple in with the conversation. Of course, he's the publisher of Emission Track that uh, monitors CO2 carbon dioxide emissions and uh, is a student uh, of uh, what's going on in the hydro business here in the province of Ontario. Uh, Steve, good to have you on the program. How are you doing these days? Great to be here, Bill. I'm great. How are you? Good. We talked about this a few weeks ago when uh, the Energy Board made this announcement, and we're getting all the details on this. Uh, and, and it's not lost on, I guess, a lot of people, that, uh, notwithstanding the campaign promise. You can take those with a grain of salt, of course. But uh, ho- hydro rates for households have gone up about 1.8% uh, since Doug Ford took office. Uh, we had a bit of a reprieve there during the first part of the pandemic, but I guess the honeymoon's over. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's just the same thing as if you were or, uh, uh, financing your all your purchases through your income, your monthly income, and suddenly you just decide, well, I'm gonna, uh, I'm going to uh, start paying, putting uh, some of it on a, onto a credit card, and claiming that, uh, well, I saved money on my monthly expenses. No, I didn't. I borrowed the money. Everybody knows with a credit card, you get a notice in the mail a month later from the people who loaned you that money, saying we want you to start paying that money back, and that's what that that's what this is right now. Now we're get we've got an option. We can opt out of the uh, the, the system that we, a lot of us have been using for the last little while. Uh, any benefit to that at all? Well, yeah. If you, if you as as you were as 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 it said at the top, if you're using less than a thousand kilowatt hours a month, uh, then you're better off on the tiered system. And I think that that applies to basically anybody who's less than 
11, uh, less than a thousand kilowatt hours per month, and then uh, and then after that you're at time of use. But either way, it's it's these are still high electricity rates. I mean, I was just uh, remembering back in in uh, uh, 2002, 2003, the rates were were uh, frozen at four cents a kilowatt hour. Remember that bill? Four cents yes, a I kilowatt do. hour. And uh, boy, that would be nice today. Uh, yeah, they're uh, 21 cents uh, right now on weekdays. Uh, that's on peak hours. 15 cents on weekdays uh, mid-peak, and then uh, 10.5 cents on uh, weekdays uh, and weekends, which is off-peak hours for them. Uh, here's the problem, though. <laughs> uh, you say, if, you know, because the, the, the barometer here is how much you're actually using. How many people are working from home these days? And, and using yeah. more hydro than they probably ever had to. I mean, I, and I'm a case in point. You know, I've been here since March 15th, and I've got, you know, this computer over here, this thing here, and it, on it goes, and it's all coming on my hydro bill. And so not only is my rates going up, but I'm using a lot more hydro than I want to, and I'm not the only person. There's a lot of people doing this now. Absolutely, and, and, the, and the importance of residential electricity is, is just is gotten much higher just because we're it's now it's it's now running the economy whereas before it was powering uh, uh, com- uh commercial enterprises and institutions uh those uh who have that have workforces that are now working from home well that that burden has gone over to the residential side and and uh well just uh just we gotta we gotta get our money's worth or we've got to get our we've got to pay those contracts that we signed uh back in the last uh 10 15 years and uh and that's what this is well, you know, whether you're working, as I am, for a broadcasting institution or if you're working for IBM or whatever it is, uh, they paid the hydro set every time you went into the office. I mean, you know, they, they, God bless them. They gave you the computer. They gave everything else. But the, the hydro bill didn't go to, to the employees. It went to the company. Uh, now the, the, the bill's going to the employees uh, and, and for God knows how long. So, I mean, this is a double whammy for an awful lot of people that are doing this sort of stuff now. Absolutely, and and are you going to be able to to claim that as a business expense or pass that through to your employer and and have them claim it as a business expense? This whole thing becomes uh, horribly complicated. But yeah, uh, to add a layer of complication on top of the you know the tiered uh, price structure, the time of use price structure, and those rates that you quoted, those are the electricity. You know, that's for the kilowatt hours that you're yeah. consuming. It doesn't pay for the uh, there's the distribution cost as well, and the system management cost, and those things have also doubled since uh, 2009. So yeah, this whole thing's just a big, complicated mess. And and you know, as we discussed the last time, we're heading into a into a into the darkest, coldest part of the year. And uh, great, a a essential source of energy. Uh, the price is going up. Yeah, and 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 therein lies the problem. About you know, we're going to be using more. Even if you're not working at home, you're going to be using more hydro uh, as a result. Now, of course, when he made this announcement, you heard he says it it really bugs him that this is happening. But well, not as much as it bugs us, I think. And he says we're working on a plan to try to reduce hydro rates. Of course, he said that two years ago as well. And every politician always says that. Uh, I saw one headline, Steve, earlier today that says your hydro rates are going up, and there's not really much anybody can do about it. I, I, I can't believe that. I, there's got to be some something going on here that we could do. And I, I don't know that anybody's tapped into it yet, but do we just have to shrug our shoulders and say, well, just, that's just the way things are going to be? Well, for the short term, I think that's, that is what we're going to have to do, you know, because these are systemic uh, uh, baked-in costs that, that, that are going to be really hard to untangle. We're going to have to back some of that stuff up and reverse it, and that's going to take some time. But like I said, there's systemic baked-in you know, we've got a we've got a solar fleet, quote unquote, which is comprised of thousands of 
individual small generators that collectively add up to 2,500 megawatts, you know, that give us nothing in the middle of the night when, we're, when we've got a big heating demand, and then uh, suddenly spring into life and, and max out in, in, the, in the early afternoon at uh, sometimes up to 2,500 megawatts, those are all getting extremely high rates. And should they be getting these high rates? These are, these are questions that are going to, you know, it's going to go legal. Uh, you've got, uh, as I mentioned uh, a couple of times ago, the National Steel Car case in Hamilton that, who is mm-hmm. uh, suing the, uh, the system operator for over the global adjustment. That's going to be the sort of, you know, tip of the iceberg when it comes to the legal ramifications of, of, uh, of expensive electricity in these, in these really high-priced contracts. Well, what scares me is is the easy way for governments to do this, as as you say, is to either freeze the rates or arbitrarily reduce them. But that simply adds up to the debt, which is going to fall on our shoulders eventually. I mean, that's what Ernie Eves did. You may remember way back when uh, he froze side and and said that you're never going to pay more than that. Well, the rates went up. Somebody had to get paid, <laughs> and so you know it was it was we were banking that, and of course that got added onto the hydro debt that everybody ended up paying. We actually had a line item on our bill for that for the longest time. So there doesn't seem to be a way here that we as consumers are going to be winners here. No, that's right. It's it's uh, it's, but there is a way that you can attack some of the take a knife to some of the the really more outrageous contracts. And you you know there's there's a lot of generation that's in our system right now that is fetching a contract rate that is way way more than the average price of electricity. Even if you factor in all the contracted stuff, uh, you know the the average price of electricity right now is about nine or ten cents. And there are contracted sources that are getting 13 cents, 15 cents, and upwards of 20 cents per kilowatt hour. And what are they? What benefit are they providing? You know, this we need to take a we need to take a very hard look at. And I, there's no there's no law that says we can't go back and renegotiate a contract when we realize that it's disadvantageous to uh, the bulk of the of the ratepayers in the province. Yeah, and that's. Uh, pertaining to Ford's point yesterday. He says you're going to blame the previous government, which every, every government always does. Uh, but there is a shred of, of proof to that because of all the contracts they hired. I know there are the people that are going to say, well, you know, if you don't like the hydro rates, but you've got to put more effort into you know, alternative sources of energy. And uh, you know, they signed some rather lucrative contracts with a number of people for wind turbines and a whole bunch of other things right now. Uh, and that's, that's part of our hardware bill. We have to understand that. Uh, some of that stuff hasn't really worked out too well. And the, the problem I had with this, and I think you and I talked about this when Ford got elected, you know, his, his idea to do with, uh, with cap and trade and everything else was rip it up. Well, there are legal ramifications to that. Renegotiate might be a better deal. It doesn't mean the contract's going to go away, but maybe we can get a better deal. Uh, you know, that, that's, that's an option at this stage. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I agree that the you know it's 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 uh, it's politically attractive to say something like rip it up and get rid of it. But you're right. There's there's a cost you have to, there's a price you have to pay for it. But in this case, uh, they're they're absolutely renegotiating. I, it's just I don't. No government, including the current one, and let's give them let's let's be fair. They they they're they're you know halfway through the mandate, and and a, a big chunk of that has been this uh, pandemic. Yeah. Uh, but there's no, there's nothing that says that they can't go back and renegotiate these rates and 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 give a new rate to some of this just really outrageous stuff that's baked in for 20 years. I mean, we're going to be paying this for 20 years. There's system costs that that are included with that, like transmission that that are going to be extremely difficult to uh, uh, buy down the costs from because they're just they're hooked up to inex- they're hooked up to in 
inefficient generation, and they've got baked in costs that are that are going to it's going to be take them longer to pay off than normal. So that's got to be this is this is a horrible mess. But somebody's got to start taking a knife to these contracts. We'll watch and see what the next steps are in this. Steve, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Great talking with you. Always a pleasure, Bill. Thank you. Take care. Steve Applin, of course, uh, from Emission Track. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The uh, Hamilton Chamber of Commerce is pushing for a uh, rather, uh, well, I think a needed program that's been going on for quite some time. The pilot project has, and the concept's been here for quite some time. This is really an offshoot from the uh, the, the uh, Canadian Chamber of Commerce Convention, which took place virtually this year, of course, because of what's going on with COVID-19. Uh, to explain what's happening, I want to bring Keenan Loomis back into the program. Keenan, of course, is the president and CEO of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce. Uh, Keenan, welcome back to the program. Uh, glad to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill. Nice to talk to you. I, I saw your press release here, and you were talking about the uh, the national conference, and it was, got me a little melancholy. I actually presented a motion at that conference years ago when I was still on city council out in Calgary about, um, oh, I know what it was now. It was about uh, about remediation for uh, for brownfields, and it passed unanimously, and, of course, the chamber lobbied the government, and, you know, we've got a policy in place. So the chamber works. I mean, you guys are a very efficient uh, body for representing uh, businesses and 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 and. and I, I guess you know advising governments about what you'd like to see happen here. So, and as per usual, this is what you guys did again this year. And uh, you're encouraging the government right now to take a second look at this basic income project that many people in the Hamilton area know all about. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks, Bill, for the opportunity to talk about it. Uh, as you uh, have witnessed, it's a very interesting process. The uh, uh, Canadian Chamber Annual General Meeting. Uh, all of my colleagues from across the country gather um, and have uh, most of them have proposed resolutions to be adopted by the uh, the entire network and to form the uh, advocacy agenda for the Canadian Chamber of Commerce vis-a-vis uh, the federal government. And so this year, our policy was to encourage the federal government to uh, create a basic income pilot project so that we as a network uh, can have a stance on what is, uh, you know, one of the biggest uh, public policy uh, discussions right now, part of our uh, national discourse. And uh, up until this point, the CCC had no stance on, uh, on basic income. And, of course, we could very easily see this as being an issue in the next election. And by the way, if people that haven't attended a conference like this, this is not just, hey, I want to present the motion, let's vote on this. This is sort of like Dragon's Den. You have to sell them on this. I mean, you make a presentation, and you've got to win them over. Yeah, there's a lot of politicking that goes on uh, between caucuses <laughs> uh, leading up to the uh, the the conference itself. Um, you know, we uh, may, you always have to make sure that uh, you have a good amount of support from the Alberta caucus. And the Alberta caucus always has to make sure there's a certain amount of support from the Ontario caucus as well, because uh, uh, these resolutions have to pass with uh, two-thirds of uh, approval by the body. And so Ontario and Alberta effectively have a veto if uh, they as a caucus vote against something. So, you know, one of the encouraging things that, uh, you know, about this whole process this year for us on basic income is, you know, yeah, there were some chambers that uh, are just fundamentally uh, opposed to the concept of basic income, but there were enough, and and especially enough in Alberta, uh, in support to be able to get us to to pass this um, resolution this year. And and 
as I mentioned a couple seconds ago there, I mean, you know, you've got some perspective on this because uh, a previous uh, provincial government here in Ontario did adopt a pilot project for uh, basic income, and Hamilton was one of the sites. So we, we've got some, I, I don't want to say data because a lot of the stuff we got was anecdotal. Sadly, the government pulled the plug on it, the new government pulled the plug on it before they, they were able to get a whole lot of information about this. But we did see it in action. And, and talk to us about that, Keenan, about your perspective on that and, and why you felt it's a good idea going forward now for the federal government. Yeah, so um, because of that, we have built up a great deal of knowledge of basic income as an organization um, and as a community and a great deal of advocacy as well. And the same goes for Thunder Bay. So our colleagues in Thunder Bay, uh, led by Charlotte Robinson, who's the CEO there, and you know, she's a she's an incredible uh, policy expert, um, and in particular on basic income. And so, uh, when the provincial government canceled the pilot um, one year, or yeah, one year into the three year pilot, mm, yeah. um, both she and uh, and we uh, wrote a letter to the federal government encouraging them to pick up the the project, and they did not, um, unfortunately. And so, as a result, as you said, we we only have partial results. Um, some encouraging results that came out of that uh, after just a year, but you know, not enough really to be able to say that we have generated, you know, uh, evidence-based policy position on this. And so that was that was our purpose behind this was not to necessarily, you know, litigate the efficacy or inefficacy of basic income. We just don't know at this point in time, and so that's why a pilot project is is needed. And you know, one of the things I love about the Canadian Chamber Network, there are no ideologies. People park those, you know, um, at the door, and uh, and this is about evidence based policy making, and how can we possibly, you know, know um, what position to take unless we're able to. Um, to point to a, a pilot study. And so, you know, I think it's probably best for the federal government to take this on anyway, because uh, the provincial government's one thing to, to say that, you know, we've, we have results from Hamilton and from Thunder Bay, and I think Lindsay was the Lindsay, yeah, other yeah. community in Ontario. But it would be nice to be able to, you know, pick a, a, a community in, in B.C. and in Alberta and Manitoba and across the country so that we can, we can really see from coast to coast um, what sort of impact uh, basic income has within those communities. We need to, I don't want to get too deeply into the definition here because I know there was a lot of pushback even when the uh, the Ontario government was trying to do this a few years ago. Uh, this is not just, hey, sit on your duff at home and we're going to give you a check. This is an income supplement uh, to try to bring people's cost or, or quality of life up. And and we did hear anecdotally so, some of the people that took part in the Ontario project and in the Hamilton area, Keenan, uh, you know, they went back to school with the extra money. They retrained themselves. I mean, there were some pretty positive things happening. They started uh, businesses. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, th- yeah, this is all stuff that, that, that you know, I, I think it gives you a foundation for the discussion anyway. Yeah, you're not, you're not going to live a lavish lifestyle off of basic income. You know, it, it's it's really just about um, uh, covering the necessities in life, but being able to you know not have to worry about necessarily where you know your next meal is going to come from or or how to uh, to pay your rent for this year uh, or for this month, and instead be able to say, okay, that's covered. Now I have the opportunity to go to school, or I have the opportunity to be able to start up that business that uh, I always wanted. And the, you know, the other perspective from our, from our business members' perspective is the knowledge that most of this money gets spent in the local economy, on mm-hmm. groceries, on rent, et cetera. So again, you know, it's not about uh, empowering people to buy the, the newest iPhones. 
It's about really covering the basic necessities of life so that we can, you know, and, and, and that will, of course, encourage uh, better social outcomes, or at least that is, uh, that is what the, the premise is. But again, how do we know if we don't, uh, if we don't study this? Well, because I know some people have pre-ordained ideas about this, Keenan, uh, as they did about an, an increase to the to the uh, minimum wage. And I know we discussed that, you and I, extensively. And I talked with your Ontario counterpart, too, a number of times about this. And there are certainly two schools of thought on this. Uh, but before it was instituted, phase one of it anyway, by the Wynn government, the, you know, there was all sorts of speculation it's going to kill small business. They aren't going to be able to afford it. And we found anecdotally after the first year that actually it was great for small business. Business increased. Uh, and, and they did not have to lay people off. Now, that was a different economy, of course, than it is now. But in other words, until you actually implement a program, even on a pilot project basis, you just don't know. You're only speculating about this. And a lot of the negative stuff about this uh, is 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 going to dominate. And I'm sure you guys heard that during the chamber uh, discussion about uh, uh, basic income, that, you know, it's 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 an income supplement. Well, we already do that in this country, Keenan. You know, we have the guaranteed income supplement for seniors. We have the child uh, income supplement for for, for mothers uh, we're doing this already to try to give people a hand up why not for this this group of people that need it probably as much if not more than other people well it's amazing that as soon as as covid struck um essentially uh the government came up with a basic income yeah and and and, and policy and that is what we have uh uh had uh over the last number of months and it's about uh giving people again that that baseline of of income so that uh their their uh, basic necessities are being met and but even before covid you know we know that the changing nature of work and jobs and all of that automation uh artificial intelligence um you know we're concerned about how are people going to earn their income so it was it was um a, a good idea before covid it's an even better idea now to study the impacts of basic income well, you know, there, there were rumors going around when the CERB program was uh, coming, well, the first phase of it anyway. They did extend the deadline on it, of course. But there was speculation in Ottawa that they were simply going to roll that CERB program into a basic income program because you're right. If, if, if not basic income in name, it certainly is in practice. It's exactly what they were doing. It's a top up so people could get by. Uh, so they, they're already in that mindset, aren't they? Yeah, well, and we have a whole, uh, system and, 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 and many, many layers to this system, as, as you were uh, suggesting, you know, we, we do have uh, a, a nice social uh, security safety net here in this country. And, and you know, certainly I, I look at what's going on down south. It, it, it's going to be really, really difficult for people to, to meet their needs. Um, it, it already is, and it's, it's getting even worse. But we have a certain basic level of support uh, in this country. But what is also, what has happened is we have created this Byzantine welfare system that is really uh, has bloated the bureaucracy. So part of the whole concept of this or, or one of the, the interesting aspects of this is you can you can really simplify and, and, and probably shrink government by the creation of this basic income um, project. And uh, that, you know, that's something that is also very appealing um, to businesses and, and to those of uh you know, more conservative ideologies. So, um, you know, in the end, I think that, uh, you know, we, we can see that there is um, a, a large embrace for basic income across the entire ideological spectrum here in, uh, in this country. And as I said, we can very easily see this as being a, a big issue 
in the next election. And so it was important for us to make sure that we as a network had a stance on this. And and to be sure, I mean, even when they tried it in Ontario here, uh, there's a, a, for all intents and purposes, a means test. Not everybody gets a check. I mean, you have to show that, that you qualify in a situation like that. And then, they, of course, they monitor and see how things are going uh, over a period of time. So there's that. But you're right. It, uh, it it alleviates an awful lot of the problems that that bureaucracy was created to to, to try to address. Uh, things like, you know, affordable housing and, and, and homelessness and, 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 you know, poverty issues and, and you know, increase uh, in, in you know, in, in people that are taking time off because they're sick, uh, you know, raising that income and giving them that opportunity and that comfort level uh, doesn't alleviate all those, but it certainly reduces the impact of a lot of those programs. And I, I got to ask you, what are next steps now? I mean, you've passed this now. The, the Canadian Chamber's got this tucked away. Uh, I mean, usually when you're having a normal conference uh, in whatever city it's going to be, uh, you know, you, 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 there's always a couple of ministers kicking around there too that you can actually grab a cup of coffee with. When you're doing it yeah. virtually, it's a little bit different. So, how do you? What are your next steps now? Well, obviously, there are a, a whole slew of priorities uh, right now, um, and uh, you know, the, the Canadian chairman. This is just one of, of many um, issues that we're dealing with uh, at the moment. Uh, one of many issues that were on the agenda: infrastructure. Uh, was a big part uh, of it, uh, tax reform. You know, th- there's a lot of things, obviously. So I, I think more than anything, um, to have this in their back pocket, to be able to respond to uh, the conversation that happens in Ottawa. Um, I don't know if this is uh, something that's going to come up right away from the uh, the federal government or, again, is, is going to be um, reserved for fighting an election over. But... Um, but certainly, like I said, it, it's important for the CCC to be able to respond and to say, well, you know, in fact, what we are encouraging uh, you to do is institute a pilot so we can study it and uh, and then be able to respond from there. Well, I know from that standpoint, if you're looking at their their schedule, so to speak, uh, you know, Finance Minister Freeland said there's going to be an economic update, I guess, uh, sometime in November. Probably not a, a budget until, uh, you know, I, well, usually they do it, what, end of January, early February. So you've got a little bit of time here uh, to, to talk to them and play with them about this and see if they want to institute this. It'd be nice if it was included in a throne speech in a budget at some point. Well, it, it could it could very well be, yeah. It's up to you guys from here on in. you got to carry the ball. Just, <laughs> yeah, uh, well, that's right. Our advocacy certainly will not end on this, and uh, we're highly motivated within the Ontario Chamber uh, network to encourage uh, this uh, this pilot as well. So it's it's nice to, to again, make this a, a national policy. Keenan, uh, kudos to you guys uh, for, for instituting this and for running with it and uh, getting it over the goal line and getting the rest of the uh, Canadian Chamber, the majority of them anyway, on side with this. And uh, here's hoping you have continued success with it. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks, Bill. Really appreciate it. Take care. Keenan Loomis, President and CEO of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.